you would, turn the Bible to Nehemiah chapter 13. Matt, so good to see you up here praying. Your uh, physical heart might still be recovering, but that passionate spiritual heart is still there, and we praise God for it. Church, it's been a heavy little stretch here for us, hasn't it? Tomorrow morning we'll gather yet again for a funeral. Miss Laverne Bozart's funeral is tomorrow for those of y'all that know her. Life's been sad lately. And when you go through these heavy, emotional, confusing days, I hope your mind turns to the bigger picture. Look to God, seek God, trust God. Recognizing that this, this life ain't it. This life is at times wonderful, but at times hard to understand and heartbreaking. The end of the book of Nehemiah is like that. Some of y'all remember when we started Nehemiah a long time ago. We actually started in April, and then we took that big long break for sabbatical. So we started it again in July. So we're about three months that it took us to study this book. And some of y'all remember me mentioning that almost everybody wants to make Nehemiah a book on leadership. Remember that? We've talked about that. It's come out some. But I told you all that I intentionally was going to try for it to not be that way. Okay? There are a lot of leadership principles, and we're going to cl- conclude today with some of those, um, but I didn't want it to just be that, because the ending of the book of Nehemiah, it, it doesn't end on a high note. It ends with some discouragement. But while it's not just discouragement, it ends more with Reality. Sounds a bit more real in chapter 13 than it did through chapters 1 through 12, necessarily. And that, too, is intentional by God. For us to not conclude that Nehemiah is the savior of the world or the best guy ever, we need somebody better than him. We need Jesus. Read with me, if you will, beginning in Nehemiah 13. We'll read the first three verses. On that day, they read from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent." Now, we've mentioned this a couple times. Let me say it again just for, just for complete clarity. When the Bible is saying things like this, it's not based off of uh, race or skin color or language or nationality, anything like that. It's based off spirituality. It's based off the God that you follow. 
people that follow the true God, the God of the Bible, are not to be mixing and compromising worship and holiness to God with others, whether that be the same language or whether that be a different language, whether that be the same country or whether that be a different country. So here in the Old Testament, it's saying that there's no, there's no racism mixed in here, okay? We need to make sure that we understand that. Nehemiah chapter 13 begins with these first three verses, and if the book ended there, if it ended right there, it would be, wow, what a good ending. We all know the story. I've recounted it week after week. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes, as a, uh, not even in his homeland. He finally gets burdened. His brothers come back from checking out Jerusalem. He says, how are things? They say, man, it's bad there. It is broken down. It's a shame. God's name is disgraced there. And enough was enough. Nehemiah couldn't take it anymore, and he resolved, i got to do something. i got to make a difference. Somebody's got to make a difference for God and for his name. And Nehemiah sat on that burden and, and, and let it kind of marinate in him, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. And the Bible says it was four months that Nehemiah was wrestling with this, and finally the king said to him, what's going on, man? Why are you so sad? You're not sick. It's a, it's a deeper sadness. What's going on? So Nehemiah told him that, and the king, long story short, opens up all of these doors and, and gives him the opportunity to go with his support back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. The leadership of Nehemiah comes out like never before. He's wise, he's strategic, he's a planner, he, he goes about it the right way and before long Nehemiah has turned uh, uh, all the people into supporting him. Let's do this, let's work, let's build it back, let's get back focused on God. It's a cool story. It's really a cool story. They rebuild the walls, they dedicate the walls, we studied that last week, they dedicate the wall, and now they're trying to learn to be the people of God. In the middle of all that was the significance of the word, they brought Ezra in, he read the Bible and read the Bible and read the Bible, he read the Bible for hours, he read the Bible for days, and they started hearing things about God and God's truth that they had never heard before. It's embarrassing and shameful when the people of God have spent their whole lives saying they're the people of God and they don't know the things that God says. That's a word for 2023 for your home, for your household, for your mom, for your dad, for your kids, for your kids, for your children, for your church going car that shows up here today. May we not be people like that. It's one of the, people apply it all the time and it works in application. I'm not trying to say it every, but it's one of the most embarrassing things in the world that you and I see correlation between the wayward people of Israel and our Christian households in America. It's embarrassing. And the people of Israel heard the word of God read and they all of a sudden started saying things like, well, we didn't even know that there was supposed to be a feast of booths. And so they get back to trying to live like the people of God. And then they make this big covenant together, and they all came together, and they signed it, and they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to change this about ourselves, we're going to change this about ourselves, we're going to change this about ourselves, and God says to do this, so we're going to do that, and God says to do this, we're going to do that. And they made this big covenant that they were now going to live for God, and it sounded awesome. And we get here to the very end of, chap of the book, the very end, chapter 13, we read the first three verses, and they're doing that. It says they're reading the word of God there in, ch in chapter 13, verse 1. They see that they're supposed to be fully devoted to God. And if anybody else comes into their lives from anywhere in any way and causes them to disconnect from God and what sin is, it being wrong, and what holiness and it being right, and disobedience and obedience, if, anything, if anybody comes into your life that causes you to get weak on that or wayward on that or to compromise that or be okay with that, anything against God, you should disconnect from them. 
That goes for friendship, that goes for relationships, that goes for marriage, that goes for everything. Now, we can be friends with anybody in the world, and we absolutely should. The Bible tells us to love everybody in the world. There are no exceptions for who we are to love. But we are not to link up with anybody that causes our faith in the one true God to be compromised. We are not to link up with anybody that causes sin against the holy God to not be bad. We are to take those things serious. And at this point, that's kind of where they're at. And they're getting that, and they're resolved to it, and they're ready to live for him. But that's not where the book ends. And it keeps going. And remember, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. And we didn't know how long he was going to go. And at some point, he needed to go back and visit and check in communicate with the king, and so he does. And what we see unfolding here, the rest of chapter 13, is gonna be eye-opening today. It's gonna be really eye-opening for some of you all if you've never read this before. It's pretty heavy, it's pretty intense, but we're here for it, right? We're grown-ups. We understand that life is hard and life is messy, so God, give us the truth, and he will. So read with me now, starting in verse four. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, so you see, okay, they were related, his family, and as we know all so well, man, family can really mess you up, can't it? We love family, but it can. Verse five, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Everybody see what just happened there? This guy, Eliashib, who had some responsibility, he was a priest, has now moved out some of the items in the household of God in the temple to create room for a bedroom for his little cousin or whoever he was, he just says they were related, to live in the temple of God. This guy's not even a believer in God. He's not even a follower of God. Chapter two says he was the one worshiping other gods and saying, we're not gonna build a wall. We ain't gonna live for God. God's not gonna do that. Chapter four says that he was the same way. Tobiah is not a guy that has respect for God, reverence for God. He doesn't follow God. And Eliashib, because it's his cousin, is now moving the things out in the temple so that he can live there. Created him a little room there. It's a bad thing. Verse six. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. We love Nehemiah by this point, right? We do. So you can already anticipate, wait till he comes back, right? He wasn't there. I was not in Jerusalem. Verse 6, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king, and I came to Jerusalem. So he went back to visit for a little bit. Things were going really well. They had just made a covenant. They had agreed that they're going to get back focused on God. I mean, it seems okay. He leaves for a little bit, verse 7. Came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil. Everybody see that? And the Bible is really clear on some things. I know there have been a lot of people saying, yeah, but it's, it's family. I mean, he's just going to live there for a little bit. It ain't that big of a deal. I mean, he, he ain't Christian, Christian, but he, he believes in God. 
He's a God-fearing man. We love that phrase, God-fearing man. God-fearing man is really an Old Testament phrase of somebody that wasn't a believer, but they just feared God. Nehemiah comes back and said he discovered evil. Does everybody see that in verse seven? Nehemiah comes back and said he discovered evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah. What was the exact evil? Preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Doesn't this already throw your mind to the New Testament when the Lord Jesus Christ came into his father's house, the temple, and other things that didn't seem to be that bad of things were going on in the house of God. And the house of God is supposed to be a house of prayer and a house of worship and a place where broken sinners come to get forgiveness, right? Isn't that what it's supposed to be? And you remember Jesus was angry and did not sin and Jesus went off on them and he made a whip a whip, and he drove them out. This sounds a little bit like we're moving in that direction. Verse eight, and I was very angry. Did everybody see that? I'm gonna talk about it a little bit more in a little bit, but you need to know that there are some things that you should be angry about. Now, it does take great maturity and wisdom to know what should anger you and what should not anger you, okay? But notice he was very angry. Verse eight, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Wow. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Nehemiah is getting it back to the way it should be. I also, verse 10, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. Now, because this happened, because of all of those things that were to go to the Levites, they had been moved out so that his little cousin could move in there. Because that had happened, now the Levites are being neglected, they're not getting paid, they're not being provided for, and that's another type of evil in a different way. Levite is a role that they are to be serving God, and they're not even getting that. So because they're not being provided for, they had to go elsewhere. They had to find a new place to stay and a new place to work and a new way to support their family. So they're gone. So this one little move that seemed like I'm just going to help him out and give him a place to stay turned into a really, really, really bad thing. Verse 11, and we're going to stop at verse 11 for a second. So I confronted the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? My first point this morning for you kids using a listening page is we need change. Three words. We need change. We need change. Nehemiah is recognizing here, this ain't good. This ain't right. Why is it like this? How could this be happening again? It shouldn't be this way. Anytime we recognize in our lives that something's not the way it should be, we'll hear somebody say, something needs to be done about that. Whether it's traffic or long lines or shipping delays or whatever, something needs to be done about that. And navigating through life is really hard, and it is hard being a decision maker and to make decisions that uh, affect a lot of people. But when it comes to God and his glory and his ways and truth, when it comes to that sort of stuff, we need change. 
And if we're not going in the direction that God would have us to go, then we need change. Nehemiah recognizes this. It's really frustrating that Nehemiah is the only one that's really thinking about this, right? It is. Tobiah is not a worshiper of God, and he's living in the house of God. This was a bad thing. The Levites are supposed to be pre-servants in the work of God, in the house of God, and they're being neglected. That's a bad thing. So Nehemiah asked a real simple question. It didn't mean he was smart. It didn't mean he was educated. It didn't mean that he had some success and he was the unique one. What he had was conviction and burden that life's about God. That's all he had. And he asked, why is the house of God forsaken? Why isn't God being worshipped? Why aren't you living for God? Why aren't you focused on God? Why aren't you listening to God? Why aren't you doing what God's supposed to do? What what God has told you you're supposed to do? Why aren't you? Anybody that's ever read the Old Testament knows that the story that is repetitive in the Old Testament is the people of God doing this. Okay, God will live for you, and then they don't. Okay, God will live for you, and then we don't. Okay, God will live for you, and then we don't. Okay, God will live for you, and then we don't. And even in the little lifetime of Nehemiah, it happens again. But it's really, really bad because they had already promised God that they would not do this. Don't you remember that? Look back to chapter 9, verse 38. This isn't a lot of turning. I just want you to see this. Nehemiah had already told them in chapter 9 how wrong they were and how off they were and how far from God they were. So look at verse 38 of 9. Because of all this, all this disobedience, all this reproach on God, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So they're making a firm covenant to God, a deep, heartfelt promise to God, okay? Turn over to chapter 10, verse 39, the end of chapter 10. All of chapter 10 is the big, long covenant. We already read that once. Look at the very end of it. You gotta see this. Look at the last statement of chapter 10. We will not neglect the house of our God. Does everybody see that? These guys, with all of their goodwill and intention, with all of their heart that meant well, went to the far extent to make a firm covenant in writing to say, God, I will live for you. Nehemiah leaves, goes back to where he had been working, comes back for a little bit, and they already don't. They've already given it up. They've already turned their backs It's really common in our day to see somebody hear a message or go through a really emotional life experience and pledge their love to God. I'm I'm gonna go to church. I'm gonna gonna get baptized. I'm gonna live for God. I'm gonna gonna make some changes. And in in the moment, we'll make every pledge we could possibly make if we hope that spins things better in our favor. But the fallen man and the sinful heart are unable to live for God. Not without his power working in and through us by the Holy Spirit. And so, change is needed. Commentator Betts writes, It is amazing how drastically things can change. Isn't that a statement, right? What we thought was going really well one day 
the next day can be so different. Nehemiah 13 shows us that what we really wished would be a happy ending is not. We need change. The politicians get this right in our day, don't we? They know that we need change. Man, they get that right. But how to bring about that change, they get so wrong. We need change. And we need change here by people that are concerned about God's reproach, about, God's be, about God being ignored, about God being forsaken. Nehemiah shows us this. But while this beginning section of Nehemiah 13, the end of Nehemiah shows us that we need change, can't we also recognize at this point that we always need change? Can't we? I think so. This is immediately where my mind goes. Hey, 2023, 1983, 1953, 1903, right? What year are we talking about? We still need change. We always need change. And I'm not saying that from our life experience today. I'm saying that from what we just read in Nehemiah. One of the crazy things about Nehemiah 13 is that's what Nehemiah 1 sounded like, isn't it? Nehemiah 1 is Nehemiah going, hey, how are things in Jerusalem? And the people say, it ain't good. They're not, nobody's living for God there. And it bothered Nehemiah. Nehemiah 13 is Nehemiah going, well, I went back to visit the king Artaxerxes, and I came back to, to Jerusalem, and nobody's living for God. And so I thought, what's going on? The ending of Nehemiah is the same as the beginning of Nehemiah, that the people who say they live for God do not live for God. The, say that the people that say they're going to heaven to be with God forever don't know God. They're not living for him. Now, in the middle of that is this awesome story on the leadership of Nehemiah and his burden there. But the bigger picture is, man, let's not make this about Nehemiah and his leadership. Let's make this about the pathetic disgrace that religious people can be apart from the power of God working through them through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the honest truth. My first point today is that we need change, but my second point for you kids in the listening page is that we always need change. They are back being ungodly, worldly people. The only difference is that they're inside their own city and their own walls that they built out of, uh, out of, uh, out of desire to do something for God, but it's not good. They're back there, but they're not living for God. Look back to verse 11. He asked the question, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Verse 12, then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into their storehouses. And I appointed as treasures over the storehouses, Shelmiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah the Levites, and their assistant Hanan, the son of Zakur, and son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. So immediately upon Nehemiah returning, they start getting back in gear. They, they start saying, okay, we need to do the right thing. Which is concerning. If the reason why you do what you do is because of somebody's influence in your life, what are you gonna do when they're gone? You know what's an epidemic of our day? Grandparents dying. Man, when grandma dies, this family is gonna fall apart. When the last praying person dies, this family's going to fall apart. It's an epidemic in our, in our society. 
This society that we had boasted so much about, about how godly we are is showing its true colors when grandma dies or grandpa dies. It's the truth. Nehemiah comes back and they immediately start getting it back together, but it raises the massive question. They only do what they do when Nehemiah's around, so what if he's not around? You remember when Moses went up on the mountain? You remember when Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God and a whole storm broke out and the earth shook and the glory of God, the Shekinah glory was there and Moses met with God and he comes back down off the mountain and they had taken all the jewelry they could find and made a cow and said, this is our God that redeemed us? How ridiculous is that? And so is Christianity of our day in so many directions. Pledge our love to God and yet don't want to live for him. I can only imagine the frustration and disappointment and anger that God must feel toward those who claim his name falsely. So in verse 14, Nehemiah prays, remember me, oh my God. Y'all, this is the first of four points, I mean of four times where Nehemiah prays in this chapter, remember me, oh God. Nehemiah, we have seen throughout the whole book, chapter one to chapter 13, is a praying man. He's a man of action, he's a man of conviction, he's a doer, he does things, but he always covers it in prayer. He's always praying to God. And here we we see him say, remember me, oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Why do you think he's saying that? Nehemiah is fully aware, man, God, your people aren't really living for you. And I've been trying to, God. So when you get upset and you're ready to punish your people because he's about to bring this up, because that's what God has done to his people that are disobeying him, he has punished them in the Old Testament. God, when you get set to do this again, remember that I've tried to live for you. It's a humble prayer. It's a desperate prayer. Verse 15, in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? You see what's happening? They're disobeying God again. He'd already gone over that. He'd already explained that to them. Remember, he's the one who said, keep the door closed to the city on the Sabbath. Keep the gate closed. You're letting all these people come in. You're not obeying God. You're not doing what you're supposed to. Keep the door closed on the Sabbath so that this can't happen. And he leaves for a little bit, and they just go right back to it. And so Nehemiah calls it evil again. I love how honest he is. What's this evil thing that you're doing? Verse 18, look at this verse. This is what he just hits so close to home. Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. 
Church, it is true that God is a God of love and grace and mercy. And he offers that to you all day, every day through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will turn to Christ and repent of your sins and cry out to God for forgiveness, you will be forgiven of all your sins. But it is also true that God is a God of wrath and justice. And if you think that you do not need to care about him or live for him or trust in his son dying on the cross, God will deal with you. And it is good, healthy faith. And it is right for you to trust God in that way. It doesn't mean we're judgmental people. It doesn't mean we're old school. It doesn't mean we're legalistic. It means that we are believing what God has said about himself. Church, this is so important. I I wish the ending of Nehemiah would have been about Nehemiah is a great leader and you guys need to go out there and just follow his principles and we'll make the world a better place. But it doesn't end that way. Now you see why all the books and all the famous pastors preach just the leadership of Nehemiah because this is a brutally honest chapter, isn't it? What are you guys doing? You are bringing wrath on us, he says. What are you guys doing? You're bringing wrath on us, he says. You can't claim God and then disobey God. That is frustrating. If you don't think God's that way and that's frustrating, just take your own home. Every dad in here, every mom in here, think about one of those parenting moments where you were just so frustrated. You asked your kids to do something, and they didn't do it, and a few times it was okay, you showed grace, but eventually you were ready to lose your mind. That ain't bad of you. Now, we wrestle with how to accurately and in a healthy way really do that rightly. But if your kid's back-talking you, eventually enough's enough, right? Eventually, you've got to just recognize that is so bad for you to back-talk me that way. And you totally understand that. Well, God is more of a parent to us than we are to our kids. God made us. Our kids are gifts to us from God. God made us. He is our father. He holds us in our hand. It's his sovereign power right now that's given me the ability to breathe. It's God's sovereign power right now that's making your ears work. I mean, he owns you. He is your God. And if he's upset over the way we're disregarding him, then we need to hear that. We need to read Nehemiah 13. So change is needed, but man, it's like it's, it's always needed. Nehemiah starts repray, praying, remember me. Tony Evans talking about this prayer, remember me, which is a neat way to do it because just be quite honest, you and I don't really pray that way. It almost sounds, it almost sounds arrogant if we were to say that. God, remember me, man, I've been doing right. We don't pray like that. But Nehemiah does. And man, in his day, with all these other people being so far from God, maybe, maybe it makes sense. But Tony Evans, speaking on this prayer, says, When Nehemiah asked God to remember him, he was asking God for help to accomplish what God was doing in his kingdom agenda in his community. That's a good thought, isn't it? Yes, it is. So we need change, but we always need change. Let's keep reading, verse 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? 
If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. That's strong, isn't it? From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Let's stop there for just a second. Folks, when people do the right thing, it makes a difference. It may be confrontational. It may not be pretty. But it makes a difference. Obedience in the direction of God will make a difference. If y'all do this again and try to come in here to this city that we built by the mercy of God, I'm going to lay hands on you. You know what stopped? Them coming and doing it. You got to be careful with laying hands on people. But back then, it worked. Verse 22, then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. All along, y'all, Nehemiah's passion has been the glory of God. All along, Nehemiah's burden has been God's not honored and I want him to be honored. You cannot miss that. So then he prayed, remember this also in my favor, oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Nehemiah never says, I'm so great, I know I deserve it. Nehemiah never says, hey, I've done so much for you, God, surely I'm going to get favor. He's not saying that. He knows it's based off the love of God, the mercy of God, the steadfast love of God, your greatness, God. But he does pray, remember me. So we stop there for a second and we say, change is needed, but change is always needed. Now's a good time for me to say that we We need change makers in the world, folks. I hate to put more emphasis on us than on God, but now is as good a place to ever say it. We need difference makers in the world. We need people who will put their foot down and say, I'm not gonna go against God. I'm gonna do what's right, whether you like it or not. Not because doing right in and of itself is the end, because it's not, folks. That's not us. We're not strictly moral people. We're not. We are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who one day every single knee will bow before him and every step of obedience will be honored and recognized as the right thing on that day. And every step of dishonor and disobedience before God in that day will be pointed out as that was wrong. And God will make crystal clear that the lamb is worthy for you to do the right thing even when it hurts, even when your friends don't think so. We need change makers, and Nehemiah was a change maker, wasn't he? The world needs people in it who will make a difference. See, a lot of times we think that that has to be a grand scale, that that the impact has to be huge or the change has to be massive, but that's not the case at all. Don't miss for a second the huge impact that a praying grandmother will have on generation after generation after generation. Don't miss for a second the impact that a shoebox will have on a 10-year-old girl, what she say, nine-year-old girl, who invites her friend, who in turn invites her mom, and now all three of them are in a discipleship program. Amen? We're not talking about world changers. We're talking about people that want to make a difference in their small little area like Nehemiah did. He was, let me remind you, simply the cupbearer. We need people who will be a part of the solution and people who are not a part of the problem. But let us always remember, church, that it is the glory of God that is most important, and it is not our glory, it is not our legacy, it is not our remembrance that we're living for. And Nehemiah wasn't either. We have nothing in here that tells us that about Nehemiah. We have a heart for God, and we need that. 
Isaiah chapter 40 states this well. All flesh is like grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it, and surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We don't read Nehemiah and think Nehemiah was so awesome. We read Nehemiah and we think God deserves his glory. And Nehemiah believed that and lived for it. And we should be challenged to do the same. I don't know who first said the quote, but there's a quote that you need to remember forever that says, only one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. May you remember that one. Nehemiah was burdened and convicted. and He was even angry that the people of God were not living for God. So number one, we need change. Number two, we always need change. And lastly, number three, we need more than change, don't we? We recognize that the need for change goes through cycles. We need more structure. We need less structure. We need more laws. We need more grace, right? We need more of this. We need more of that. The need for change goes through cycles. We need more than change. Read with me this final section of the whole book of Nehemiah. If you thought the first half was intense, it gets more intense here. Verse 23, in those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. Look at this next statement. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of of each people. Now, Now notice, here's the big deal here. Remember, this has nothing to do with race or any of that. Matter of fact, if we think that, we're really far off from the heart of God. The issue here is that they're supposed to be teaching their children the word of God. They're supposed to be teaching their children what God is like. And they have married outside of that, so the men are working and the women are at home, not even teaching them the Hebrew language of which the Bible was written. They didn't even know anything about God. That was the problem. And he had been speaking against this and speaking against this. So here we go again, verse 25. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Y'all have heard that discipline was worse back then, right? Some of y'all may not believe this. I know our kids have never heard this before. But when I was in elementary school and when I was in middle school, and I'm not that old. I'm talking the 90s. If you got in trouble at school, They took you up to the principal's office and they pulled out a big wooden paddle and they bent you over and they beat your hind end. True story. Don't read something from thousands of years ago and think, whoa, that sounds crazy harsh, okay? Discipline and reaction and putting your foot down to make a difference is different in each culture. I understand that, okay? Let's not go crazy here. We used to spank kids in school in my lifetime. Nehemiah is upset. He should be upset. It keeps happening, and so he does something about it. I looked up in the Tony Evans study Bible what he would say about this, and I kid you not, in the Tony Evans study Bible it says, 
let's leave it to say that Nehemiah went off on them. That's all it said. That's all it said. Let's just leave it to say that Nehemiah went off on them. And he should have. Keep going. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And look what he says. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Remember, this is all spiritual. It's not national or anything like that. But, but notice, Nehemiah is just coming by faith and, and, and realistic faith to say, God says don't do this. That will pull you away from God. That will cause you to start sinning against him. That will hurt your family. And Nehemiah's dealing with it. One of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elisha, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sembalat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, oh my God. There's the third mention. Because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Verse 30, thus I cleansed them from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his own word. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. And here's how it ends. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Commentator Betts, speaking on this anger of Nehemiah, says, Nehemiah's anger is because of his desire to honor God and to lead the people of Judah to do the same. His anger is not out of selfishness. Today, many of us get angry about the wrong things, and then we are, listen to this, we are passive about the things we should be angry about. What should anger us, he asks. Whatever dishonors God and seeks to destroy the body of Christ should anger us. And like Nehemiah, we should be fervent in our desire to glorify Christ and protect his church from the wolves that are within and without that that seek to devour the sheep. Such a mindset is in keeping with that of the good shepherd. And in saying that, he's reminding you of when he cleansed the temple. So we need change. We always need change. We need more than change. If you ask yourself, why does Nehemiah end like this? If it had ended at the end of chapter 12 with that covenant, we would have loved it, right? It would have sounded such like a good story. Nehemiah came in, he made a difference, and they lived happily ever after is what we would have liked it to say, but it's not, and here's why. Folks, we need a savior. We don't just need change makers and difference makers. We don't, need, we don't just need good people to move into the neighborhood. We don't just need godly politicians and, 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 and good school leaders. That, that's not what we need. Those things wear out. One of the most disheartening, disheartening things of all is when you read chapter 1 of Exodus. And it says, and a new Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. You remember that? Joseph was like the guy, man. The Pharaoh loved Joseph. Next Pharaoh comes up, don't even know who Joseph is. Y'all ain't gonna get goodness and godliness based off some guy that died years ago. You need an eternal savior. You need the one that God sent once and for all to die in your place. 
You need to recognize our sinfulness, recognize our waywardness. We need to see a little bit in the Old Testament, a little bit in the book of Nehemiah. Man, that's kind of my story too. I make promises to God and then I go back on them. I pledge my obedience and then I disobey. You need to see that and say, God, what's the solution? You need to hear God say that he loves you and he sent his son to die for you. You need to hear God say, like he does, that it is Christ's obedience that God is pleased with in your life, not your obedience or your disobedience. The obedience of Christ will be credited to you as complete obedience to you in the eyes of God when you believe. Your faith will cause God to see you as completely obedient because Jesus Christ was completely obedient. Apart from the obedience of Christ being credited to you, God will see in you your disobedience. And the whole world is under this curse of having sinned against God, dishonoring him, and yet thinking, well, maybe he doesn't see, or maybe he doesn't care, or maybe he's not there. And the Bible wants us to say, do not think that way. The Bible wants us to believe like Nehemiah believed and to live like Nehemiah lived so that other people would see my sins have separated me from God, but God loves me and he sent his son Christ to die for me. And it is not me doing good that makes God love me. It is Christ's goodness that makes God love me and I can trust in that. We need more than change. We certainly do. So in summary, as we end the book of Nehemiah, what should we think What do we do about Nehemiah and what do we do about how sadly this book ends? Betts writes, Nehemiah's work was not in vain. That's a good discussion in and of itself. Sometimes we judge people like that, don't we? A man retires and his business falls apart. A man takes a vacation, comes back to find everything's in shambles and we kind of judge him based off that. Betts writes, Nehemiah's work is not in vain. God uses Nehemiah to restore the wall and the gates that will someday welcome the Messiah. Don't miss that, right? Jesus came from Jerusalem. God uses Nehemiah to remove the reproach that was on the people of God to preserve them, and in particular, the tribe of Judah from which the Lion of Judah will come. Nehemiah prays that the Lord will remember and use what he did, and God does so in such an amazing way. Nehemiah's life is an example and encouragement to every believer, showing us what God will do with the life of one of his servants who is zealous for God's glory and for the health and reputation of the people of God. If I were to ask you, does God use people, I think you would all say, yes, he does. Are people the most important part? No, Jesus is. Make sure we get that right. Make sure the book of Nehemiah has served you well in this study. I'm so glad we made it to the end. There's a whole lot of conclusions we can draw, and we'll save that for another day. There's a whole lot of talking points that you and I can take from this. But church, it's the classic story that you see throughout history in nations and communities, in neighborhoods and families. Things were going well, and then they weren't. And it's thrust you toward, how do we make sense of it? We make sense of it like this. We need more than change. We need the Savior Jesus, who we will one day stand before. Believe in him. Turn to him. And if you're a follower of Christ, live for him like Nehemiah did, by way of helping other people 
turn to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the book of Nehemiah. God, it's been a good study for our church. God, thank you for Nehemiah's passion and fervor and burden. God, the reality is that Nehemiah must have been so upset and so discouraged. Perhaps that's why he's praying, remember me, because he was so disappointed in how it's gone. But Father, we we gain from studying his life. And we are inspired, we are truly inspired to want to make a difference in the world like he did. God, I pray you would use us, use me, use our church, in our families, in the places that we live and move and have our being. God, may we care when you're not honored. May in a good, right way, God, it make us upset. And may we learn to deal with it in the right way. Father, move us to living for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.